Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. It is such a joy to see children praise the Lord. I also rejoice with the Carnes ladies in the song praising God for his faithfulness. Can you imagine with me for a moment that what we just saw happen right here was illegal? Could you imagine with me for a moment that the government made a law that no children could be a part of any religious service, that no children could even attend a religious service. You might think that far-fetched, but on this very day throughout China, state-sanctioned churches prohibit children from even attending their services. And if you dare to bring your children to church, you are breaking the law, and you risk having that service invaded by the force and military force of the government and have your children forcibly taken from you. Again, not far-fetched. We, we, we have cameras throughout our building here, don't we? For safety reasons. There are many churches in China who meet in secret places. A dear friend of ours who attended while he was here, studying at the University of Notre Dame, went back home to China continued to worship with an underground church, church that refused to be registered, refused to obey the state laws regarding Christian worship. They met in an office complex. One Sunday morning they showed up, and throughout the whole office complex there were cameras installed overnight. They continued with their services. And that night, key individuals in that church disappeared. And when news came of their disappearance, some other people disappeared too in hiding. Imagine, again, for what we just witnessed of children singing a praise song to God is illegal. Now you tell me, what would you do in that case if the government declared that you could not bring your children to church? Would you submit? How would you harmonize the passage we preached on last Sunday in 1 Peter chapter 2? For some of you who are visiting with us today, we've been studying through Peter's first epistle. And we've come now to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 13 through 17. This is part two. Last week we preached on these verses, and today we're going to look at the balancing truths of these verses. But how would you, if your government said, can't bring your children to church, how would you answer it if a brother in Christ came to you and said, but we must not disobey the government. For look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, 
as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. How would you answer a brother who presented these verses to you if it was in the same context as being commanded by the king supreme, by the great people's government? Oxymoron there, but we don't get too political this morning. To say, you can't bring your children to church. How would you answer that? For it says, submit yourselves to every ordinance. In America, we are so blessed that these questions do not face us nearly to the degree that our brothers and sisters around the world must face them. Think of the temptation. A few years back, my in-laws were able to go to China, and they had some connections to be able to go to an underground church. And one of the things they actually noticed about that church is the children. The children and the involvement of the children in the worship of God. They also went to a state church, and up on the wall of the state church in huge letters was listed out the rules. And one of the rules listed, posted publicly in that church, no children present. It's unthinkable to us, isn't it? So how do we reconcile 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17? I want to emphasize this is part two. If you weren't here last week, if you missed last week's sermon, or I know some of you have to leave early if you missed the rest of the sermon, check out our podcast, listen to it, because it is a balancing, a balancing truths that take place in this. Very much the emphasis of last week was to call upon us as believers to submit and the importance for us to take these verses at their face value and to submit. But that submission is not unlimited, and it is a key factor here as it's wrapped up. Look with me again at verse 17. It says this, Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Those last two sentences are balancing truths. Now, what do I mean by balancing truths? Well, they're both statements that are presented to us as commands, imperatives, stated without exception. Fear God, honor the king. Both are true. Both are true. But in the big picture of things, the ultimate honoring of the king must also be in the fear of God. And so when God has said, do this, and the government says, don't do that, who do we obey? We fear God. When the government says, do this, and God says, don't do this, who do you obey? God. You must have, we must have a fear of God. That is the balancing truth here in 1 Peter chapter 2. It does not delegitimize government. Government is here presented here clearly as having a purpose. Its purpose is even spelled out. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 12, where again, the aspect and situation relating to civil government is presented to us. Oftentimes, when we deal with civil government in Romans, we begin in chapter 13 and verse 1. We ought not to do that. 
We need to back up a little bit into chapter 12 because chapter 12 lays for us a framework that leads right into chapter 13 in dealing with civil government. Follow with me in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor." Again, very clearly establishing the legitimacy of civil government and the important need for us, especially us as Christians, to submit. But what do we do when the commands are in direct contradiction and violation of what God has clearly revealed in His Word? Do we blindly Submit. Let's look at some truths. Let's look at some examples that God has recorded for us in His Word. Remember the scriptures that tell us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished on two good works? Well, let's look at the Scriptures. We also are told that these things, referring to the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we could learn from them. There's two occasions in which this is given, both positively and negatively, so that we can learn that we lust not as they lusted, that we not make the same failures and mistakes that they made, but it's also written that they are written for our examples that we can learn by them in a positive way. And so turn with me back to Exodus chapter 1. A little bit of background. Abraham's family moved to Egypt, where Jacob's son Joseph was used of God to deliver them from a famine. They were spared. Jacob died. Joseph died. His brothers died. Their descendants became a great nation in Egypt. But there arose up a pharaoh, a king in Egypt, who forgot all about Joseph, this Hebrew, who had done so much not only to save his own family, but to really save the entire nation of Egypt. 
But this new Pharaoh forgot all about him, and instead he saw these Hebrew people in the most fertile part of Egypt, in the best of the land of Egypt, and he became afraid of them. He was afraid of them because they were becoming greater and greater and greater. And so he came up with an idea. Do you remember what it was? Well, let's look here. For it tells us in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, Now there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass, when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. They made them slaves, and they put taskmasters over them. They afflicted them. Their goal was, if they can keep them working hard enough and be exhausted enough, they'll stop having babies. But it didn't work. They kept having babies. More and more and more. It says, in fact, they actually, the more that they afflicted them, the more that they multiplied. The Egyptians were exhausted by this. They were exasperated. It made them work even more rigorously. And so this king of Egypt, this pharaoh, had another idea. Look at verse 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son... Then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then shall she live. Oh, these Hebrew midwives are now presented with a dilemma. They have been given a command by the king as supreme. When you see a Hebrew woman giving birth to a boy, you kill that baby boy. Now, wait a moment. Is this a legitimate command? Is this a command that is honoring to God? Is this a command that values the sanctity of life? No. This is one of those most diabolical, horrific things recorded in history. How dare he? But he's king and supreme. He carries the sword. The army marches behind him. If we disobey Pharaoh, what will happen to us? Most certainly, we'll be killed, right? That's rather something to be afraid of, isn't it? To be afraid of dying. So will they kill the baby boys? Remember the command in 1 Peter, the balancing truths. Fear God. Fear God. Honor the king. The Hebrew midwives are faced with a dilemma. Do they honor the king? There's certainly reason to fear him. Or do they fear God? Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. It's ironic in this that the king of Egypt didn't kill them. You would think he would, but he let them live. And in fact, God rewarded these midwives in giving them homes, families of their own. Here we see an illustration, an example from history of women who were presented with this question, honor God or 
honor the king, fear God. They chose to fear God, and in actuality, by doing so, they were honoring the king. The true way of honoring the king in that situation was to not obey his ludicrous, wicked, evil designs. Fearing God. Lifted above. Continue in history. It's actually fascinating to me that some of our examples, our primary examples that are given to us of this matter of civil disobedience actually relate with kings that are not Hebrew Jewish kings. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Going back in history now, the children of Israel came to the promised land with Moses. They continued. God gave them David as a king. The kingdom was divided under Solomon, northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was carried away captive to Assyria. And you know, Judah, the southern kingdom, continued on, eventually with Jerusalem being destroyed in 586 B.C. by Babylon and Judah being carried away captive. But the captivity of Judah didn't begin at the destruction of Jerusalem. It began a little bit earlier. In 605 B.C., the Babylonians came down to Jerusalem and they took hostages. They took the best of the best. They took the princes and the educated of the land. And they brought them back to Babylon, not as particular slaves, but in a sense hostages, but not really hostages. They wanted their influence and knowledge and wisdom in their court, in their place. Among those captives, those hostages, there were four young men. Do you know their names? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Four Hebrew boys that when they showed up in Babylon were given pagan names. Daniel, Belshazzar, after a pagan god. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pagan names. They had a lot of struggles. There were situations in which they were presented with things that were, were not really big deals, but were big deals. Things as small as what they ate that were in violation to their conscience, in which they worked through these issues, and their method of appeal is brilliant, something we can learn from. But in Daniel chapter 3, the three young men, I don't know where Daniel was, perhaps he was traveling on behalf of the king in business somewhere, don't know. But the three boys, young men, teenagers most likely, were left there in Babylon at one occasion in Daniel chapter 3 when Nebuchadnezzar, the great, powerful, proud, arrogant king of Babylon, had an idea. He was going to make a golden image. He'd heard, he had had a dream about an image that was made of gold, silver, bronze, and, and so forth down through. And uh, he found out that he was the head of gold, so he decided to make an image that was made all out of gold. And he set it up in the plains. And then he made a decree to all the people that were assembled, commanded to be gathered, that at what time you hear the sound of the music, and gives, goes down through a list of instruments that will play. At that time when you hear that music, everyone will bow down and worship this golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Now there's a problem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a problem. Honor the king. Fear God. The balancing truth. How can they honor the king when he has just commanded that at the sound of the music, everyone bow down and worship his image? And how can they also fear God? You see, they have to choose. But let me tell you, the fear of God is here, but the fear of the king is here. Because if you don't bow down to this golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, you're dead, and you're dead a rather shocking death. You will be thrown into the fiery furnace a great fiery furnace prepared to throw people into alive as a form of execution. 
Is that something to be afraid of? That's a trick question. In a way, yes, absolutely. It's terrifying. I mean, who wants to be thrown into fire? I don't. So you have a choice. Honor the king, worship his image, fear God. And you have a little bit of fear over here too. Which are you going to choose? Well, the music starts to play. The masks, the masses bow down to that image and worship the image just as commanded. And it's quite obvious that there are three young men standing boldly and courageously refusing to bow. Why? Because they were honoring the king by fearing God and disobeying this commandment that was both foolish, unjust, and wicked. They obeyed God. Nebuchadnezzar was furious. He was irate. So he decided to give these people to give these people a chance, these three young men. So he called before them. He made it crystal clear to them what the deal was. You honor me, you worship my image. Not just honor me, you worship me. And if you don't, you go in the fiery furnace. These men brilliantly understood this situation. For here, it was interesting that Nebuchadnezzar had this conversation, and if you look at the end of verse 15, after this was made crystal clear to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he asks this question at the end of verse 15. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Well, he's about to meet them. <laughs> For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. This doesn't mean that they were being flippant. This doesn't mean that they were being disrespectful. This doesn't mean that they were being arrogant. It means that they were being clear, crystal clear. Verse 17, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men, were bound in their coats and their hosen and their hats and their outer garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. They chose to fear God, which was actually a way of honoring the king. Do you see it? And they paid with their lives. Or did they? Some of you were looking at me strange. They paid with their lives. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, right? Well, in rare situations, and it's actually rare, God intervenes in these situations and shows himself mighty and strong. Because if we continue on here, after they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, verse 24, it says that Nebuchadnezzar the king was a and he rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking 
in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Oh, there's a lot we could talk about here in this passage. But for sake of time and continuing to make our primary points today here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that day, when they were faced with this question, honor the king or fear God? They chose to fear God, to honor God, to trust God. And really, again, by doing so, they honored the king. And in that day, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, before he was actually incarnate as man, joined them there in that fire and delivered them from that fire. And oh, Nebuchadnezzar then that day found out who was really their God. This reminds me, if you go back to where we were, where we were beginning in 1 Peter and our, there in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Remember how here it speaks about the obedience to the civil magistrates, the civil governments, and this is a way of putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men? What we have literally seen an example by Daniel is a people who have not submitted to the king and have put to silence the mouths of foolish men. What we've actually seen is those who have disobeyed and not submitted, putting them to silence. So when we are faced with this question, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faced, honor the king, fear God. It's not a balancing truth. It's clear. You fear God, and thereby you honor the king. In the book of Daniel, turn with me a little further to chapter 6. The power has changed. The great Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty is gone. The Medes and Persians are now in charge. Darius is established as ruler in Babylon. Daniel is an old man now. We first saw he and his friends in the beginning as young teenagers. He's likely 70 years old. 70 years old. He's an old man in Daniel chapter 6. And he is a great man. He has survived these not only dynasties, but he's survived these different empires taking over each other because he's a man who fears God. He was a dependable, trustworthy governor to the point where others envied him, despised him. They sought to trap him. They sought to catch him as embezzler. They sought to catch him as a deceiver. They sought to catch him as taking bribes. They sought to trap him. They couldn't find anything. They couldn't find anything. They wanted rid of Daniel. They wanted rid of Daniel. They didn't like Daniel. Daniel made them look bad. But they couldn't find anything against him. So they came up with an idea. The only way we're going to get Daniel is if we get him on something related to his God. You know what that tells me about Daniel? Is that everybody knew that he believed and trusted in God. Everybody knew it. He lived his life that way, and it's very likely he was preaching people about the one true God. God, God. So they're going to trap him in the way of God. So they come up with this viciously cruel, wicked plan. We're going to go to the king, Darius, and we're going to get him to make a law that no man can pray to anyone or make a petition to anyone, whether God or man, for 30 days. And they knew they could get Daniel in this because they knew that Daniel had a custom, he had a practice where every day he prayed. And he actually was pray, prayed three times a day in a way that was public. People could see it. So they thought, we'll get him there. He prays, he prays three times a day. We'll get him. We'll get him. 
So they go to the king, and they flatter the king, and they make him feel special and all this, and, and, and they, they, they convince the king to make this law that nobody can ask anything of any man or God for 30 days, seal it with the seal of the Medes and Persians. And by the way, Darius wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't have absolute power. He was actually bound by the laws of the Medes and Persians, which means he, once he sealed the document, couldn't change it, which is interesting. He was a lesser powerful king. So he did it proclamation goes forth. No man can ask anything of man or God for 30 days except from the king. And that make the king feel special. So Daniel's presented with a dilemma. Honor the king, fear God. Is it hard for us to see what he needs to do? But there's a good reason to fear the king. This time it's not a fiery furnace. This time it's a den of lions. Because anyone who breaks this law shall be cast into a den of lions. That sounds like something to be afraid of, doesn't it? So not only do you have this dilemma of honoring the king, you have this issue of fearing the king, but fearing God. Who did Daniel fear? Did he fear the king? Or did he fear God? He disobeyed, blatantly disobeyed the king and did as was his custom, it tells us, and prayed three times a day. And those envious governors and presidents below him reported him to the king, and the king was crushed. The fool, the fool had made a mistake, and he knew it, but he couldn't change it. He was limited by the laws of the Medes and Persians that once he made a decree, he couldn't change it. Now, part of the reason, it's actually kind of a brilliant law because the reason for it is, is that if you have such a limitation on your decrees, you're going to be smart about what laws you make because you can't change them. Darius couldn't change the law. He tried, he fought, he struggled with it all day, and at night, he let it be done. Daniel, to be cast into the den of lions. Chapter 6, verse 16. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. This is fascinating because he's right. Whether Daniel is eaten by the lions or he's spared from the lions, God still is going to deliver him. The stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste into the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever! Honor the king. That's one way of saying honor the king. I don't think I would have responded that way. I think we, this is the king who just threw you to the lions, and you spent the night with the hungry lions, and we do know they were very hungry by what comes next. And when the king comes to him, Daniel speaks to him and says, O king, live forever. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean for him to live forever. We know that. But he's actually in his very words, as customary of addressing kings, gives him honor, even though he has been blatantly disobeying him. Do you see it? He chose. 
fear God. And by fearing God, he honored the king. See, see here the balancing truths. It's interesting because what happens next is that the king then decrees and the mouths of foolish men are shut because they're thrown into the lion's den, those who accuse Daniel, and they never even made it to the bottom because the lions tore them apart. Turn with me to the New Testament, Acts chapter 4. Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he has left a great commission for his disciples and apostles here on earth. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, Ye shall be witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem and in Samaria and in Judea and in all Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. In Matthew, it says, Go teach all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So the apostles go forth and they begin to do this. But there are some people who do not like it at all. They command that they stop preaching Christ. Stop, stop, stop preaching Christ. They saw their boldness and there was nothing they could do with it. So they arrested these men. They brought them before the consul. Imagine now being a few men standing before a consul of 70 men and all of their advisors and all of their um, pages and all of them around. You're standing in the middle of this circle. And here they tell them, strictly threaten them that they not speak henceforth to no man in the name of Jesus. That's their plan in verse 17. And so that's what they do when they call them back in. They command them, verse 18, not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. And now keep in mind something. The very guy, the man, that the Holy Spirit used to inspire, what did we read earlier? Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Peter got inspired to write that. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Is now standing before the Sanhedrin, the consul, and commanded, don't speak in Jesus' name, period. He's given an ordinance, an order by the king. Not really the king. These are pretty lesser people. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. But look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. He's just presented the balance. Here, honor the consul, fear God. And he presents this dilemma to the consul, who, by the way, are spiritual men, quote-unquote. You judge. You judge. You see our dilemma. You put us in this dilemma, you judge. Well, he's obviously being very clear that we will obey God. For verse 20, he goes on and says, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't help it. We must. We must disobey. And you say, wait a minute, the Peter guy who wrote Submit Yourselves to Every Ordinance of Man is now being given an ordinance by men, civil authorities, and he's blatantly refusing to obey it? Yes, because he fears God. And he knows that's what is right. And what happens here? Verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, the consul threatened Peter and John, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because they knew they were right. Isn't that interesting? For thereby you put them to silence. Peter speaks of submitting to them, you putting them to silence. And here now, by actually his disobedience, he's also put them to silence because it's actually truly honoring them because he's honoring God. They let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. They were afraid of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. 
It was the healing of a man that brought this all about. They didn't like the popularity that was coming with all of this. And so this continues on. What do they do? They go right on preaching. Well, they don't like that at all. Mighty miracles are done if we turn the chapter. We have this situation here. More people are being healed, and all of this is taking place. And in verse 17, the high priest rose up, and all they that were with them, and the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. These guys dared to disobey our threatenings, disobey our ordinances. How dare they? And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. This was interesting. Here they are put in the common prison. It's, it's interesting in reading things from history, dealing with the topic of civil disobedience, and in reading of this account, how people looked at this account. You know what happens? An angel of the Lord, just as an angel of the Lord closed the mouths of the lions with Daniel, shows up in the night and releases them all from prison. Now, if this was you, and you had just been previously threatened, and then you had been thrown in prison, and you have been miraculously by an angel let out of prison, what would you do? I think I might run away. Would you know what these guys do? They don't run away. They go running right past, just so you know, the prison was out there, and if you come into the temple, the Sanhedrin meets in this house right here, the consul, and this chamber. They walk right past those chamber doors into the temple, into the most prominent place, and you know what they start doing? They start preaching again. No fear of the consul, because they have a fear of God. Doesn't matter that they'd been arrested. They had a fear of God. Well, so the consul, it's actually hilarious. The consul convenes the great powerful Jews in their Sanhedrin, their great consul circle. And they're like, bring us the prisoners. They're going to deal with these guys. But the people from the prison say they're not in the prison. They're not in the prison. Well, where are they? They escaped. They probably were like, good riddance. They're gone. Some of them might have been thinking that. Oh, then somebody comes and says, hey, guys, the guys you arrested yesterday, they're in the temple preaching. Sanhedrin is irate. How dare these guys defy their orders? I mean, they know they're supposed to submit to us. How dare they not submit to us? Well, so they're arrested again. They're arrested again. And they come before these chief priests and so forth, and, um, <laughs> and they are really, really um, just, just infuriating this consul. And when they, are conf- when they confront these men, Look with me at verse 29. Again, the very same guy who wrote, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, who also wrote, fear God, honor the king. He, Peter, and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Honor the king. Fear God. We're going to honor God. We're going to obey God rather than men. And really, in the midst of this, that is the very way of honoring men, honoring that consul. Peter, Peter said this. He continued on and he said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. So is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Oh, I wish that consul said, Preach it, Peter! Oh, no, you know what they did? They ordered them to be flogged. They ordered them to be beaten and tortured. And knowing that they couldn't do anything more for fear of the people, they let them go. Now you're thinking, these guys have certainly learned their lesson, and they're going to either go get a militia or they're going to hightail out of there, right? No, they don't get a militia, nor do they hightail it out of there. They keep 
ongoing in boldness preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though the consul wanted to kill them. Turn with me to Acts chapter 22. Time has gone by. Stephen, the first, one of the first deacons, has been stoned to death for preaching Christ. The young man Saul stood by consenting to his death as the one overseeing his unjust execution. We don't have time for the whole glorious story of Saul coming to Jesus, but Saul came to Jesus, and he was appointed as, as an apostle to the Gentiles. And, and Saul, commonly known as Paul, goes forth to the Gentiles on his great missionary journeys, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in so many places he goes, he suffers for the name of Christ. Eventually, he comes back to Jerusalem, his favorite place, and he's arrested and he's brought before a consul. And in Acts chapter 22, if you look at uh, verse 30, it says, On the morrow, because he would have known the certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews, here this is speaking of the Roman, the Roman commander there, the captain, um, in in. Jerusalem, because the Jews weren't really of sovereign power. He wanted to know this, so he was going to arrange for a meeting with the Jews to come and accuse Paul face to face, because uh, this Roman wanted to know of the matter. He wanted to know for a certainty whereof he was accused of the Jews. And so he looses Paul from his bands and commands the chief priests and all their consul to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So here the consul now is no longer in their special little consul chambers, but they're rather in the fortress Antonia, the Roman fortress adjunct right next to the temple. And they're all there. Paul doesn't exactly know who everybody is that's come in that he's now sitting before. One guy, all these people. And Paul sees these people. And he, he earnestly beholding the consul said, men and brethren, he sees them, that there, there's, there's men and brethren. He says, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. What he's saying is, I haven't done anything wrong, even though I've been arrested. I'm here in good conscience. And the high priest, Paul, not knowing it was the high priest, Annas, commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. High priest just can't handle this. this. This man crying out for his innocence. And so he commands the guys to smack him on the mouth. And I don't think it was just his pat. I think they, like, knocked his teeth in. And Paul regains himself after getting smacked in the mouth. And he says unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? He reacts really strongly to this high priest, and you're all sitting there going, yeah, so he should. But the other people standing around look at Paul and say, see what he has just said, and they're like, whoa. Paul? Revilest thou God's high priest? Then Paul said, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Then he goes on, brilliantly, understanding that there was division among the people there, and he begins to actually preach the resurrection of Christ which in the end causes all of them to be so confused that they don't know what to do. And in the end of all of this, it results in Paul getting sent to Rome to be judged. Interesting that Paul appeals to Rome as he has previously appealed to his Roman citizenship in all of this situation. But notice again here, here he is recognizing here this fact. You even have a high priest who is breaking the law, and yet Paul 
it, it, he, he basically apologizes that his behavior was unbecoming one standing before the ruler of the people. Here he is one who is unjustly brought here, falsely accused, and yet he, in a failure of disrespect, acknowledges his failure. All in the midst, he is honoring God, fearing God, and honoring the king. Through Scripture, we will find these balances, these coming of balances, even in the midst of this. It's so difficult that these have these situations. And so when we ask this question, it really comes back to what Peter has said as he wrapped up the whole section on submission to civil authority. The balancing Druze. Fear God. Honor the king. If you fear God first and you obey God, even if you're disobeying the king, you're actually honoring the king. So fear God. Obey him. Trust him. There's one more passage I'd like to bring you to, and that's found in Mark chapter 12. It's particularly in context of taxes. Oh, what a touchy subject, huh? Taxes. Uh, if, if you got your extension, they're due in less than a month. Taxes. And um, you have Pharisees and you have Herodians, and... Um, the Herodians were people who were chummy with the Herod family, um, a very political family and very political uh, organization. It was a political party, the Herodians. And the Sadducees, and they liked to hang out with the Herodians. And the Pharisees, and the Pharisees didn't like to hang out with the Sadducees or the Herodians. And so there was these little factions. There were partisanship going on. Partisanship. We all know what partisanship is, right? Partisanship going on. Well, Jesus isn't a part of any of them. Oh, isn't that surprising, actually? He ain't a part of the Herodians, he ain't a part of the Pharisees, he ain't a part of the Sadducees. So you know what? None of them like him. New partisan category. The Jesus partisan. And so they're going to take care of and they're going to trap Jesus and they're going to turn everybody against Jesus because they know that Jesus actually has a biblical view of biblical submission about honoring the king. And so they're going to trap him. For it tells us in Mark 12, 13, then they said to him, then they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. That's the first-class politics. If you're going to get into politics, know that everybody's out there to catch you in your words. Catch you in your words. They're going to do this with Jesus. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, they give him the title of respect. We know that thou art true and carest for no man. You are not a part of any of our parties. For thou regardest not the persons of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Now, it's funny because none of them believe what they're saying. But that's another part of politics is you flatter people. You're a way of God. So here's our question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Just so you know, the Herodians, kind of, sort of, like Caesar, just so that they can maintain their own power. Pharisees, not so much. And the Sadducees kind of go back and forth, depending on what popular people are present. But here they're going to trap Jesus. So they ask, shall we give or shall we not give? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? <laughs> he identified it. Why are you tempting me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. So they bring him a coin. And they brought it to him. And he said unto them, Whose is the image and superscription? Whose image and name is on this coin? And they say unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is true when it comes to paying taxes, but this is true in so many other categories. Yes. In every ordinance of man, submit. But when it is in violation or in no way honoring to God, 
You cannot submit. You must render to God what is God's and what's left and what is right to Caesar, to Caesar. But you first fear God. And so I appeal to you as brothers and sisters. This afternoon we'll deal a little bit more practically on this and looking at it historically in America as well as looking at it um, from a perspective of our modern time. But I appeal to you, be very careful in dismissing civil authority and ordinances of man. Be very careful in speaking ill of the rulers of our people for their office's sake. Be careful. And in all of it, fear God. Fear God. We don't know where things are going to go in this country. There's some disturbing trends and changes politically. How do we handle, how do we navigate unjust laws? For the most part, they've been matters that are not decrees ordering us to obey or to disobey God for the most part. They've allowed great evil, which is exactly what they're not to allow. They're to be the punisher of evildoers, and it seems that they don't always punish the evildoers. But there's a shift and a change that seems to be taking place, and how do we interact with that? One of my greatest pleas with you is do not take it lightly and do not be flippant about it. Civil disobedience is a very serious matter. It's legitimate in many, many, many situations. But may you have a conscience clear with God in it and do not take it lightly, lest it result in anarchism, which is anti, no, no ruling, no rule, which is a disaster and throughout history has resulted in massive bloodshed. God has ordained civil government for a reason. And we render to Caesar, the civil government, the things that are Caesar's, while not forgetting to render to God the things that are God. We submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, while we fear God in obedience to him first and foremost, even if we suffer. And as Peter's epistle continues, that becomes the theme of suffering. For righteousness' sake, there's a balance here. May we be girding up the loins of our minds. You see why Peter introduced these sections with that phrase? Gird up the loins of your minds. Get ready to think because you've got some dilemmas in this life that are going to be hard. Fear God. Honor the King. Great God, we come to you this morning grateful for your goodness, grateful that as we pass through this life, as we continue in this life, that we can submit to you No matter how the threatenings of man may be, we know we ought to obey you, our God, rather than men. Oh, great God, as free Americans give us the wisdom that we need in doing so. And just as Peter, under your inspiration, admonished us, may we not use our liberty as a cloak for maliciousness, but rather serve you. May we be your servants and give us wisdom as Christians and as patriots in this land. Great God, we pray that you will give wisdom and that your presence would be real to our brothers and sisters around the world who at this very moment suffer persecution, are in bonds, are fleeing, are in hiding are being tortured. May your spirit fill them and give them the strength they need in this moment. And may they have boldness and may not be ashamed of your gospel, but may you give them the courage to proclaim the truth even in places where they find themselves in disobedience to the rulers and powers that be. 
Lord God, we submit ourselves to you this day and lift up your glorious name. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has not saved, who has not had their sins forgiven, that today they would know that Jesus died for their sins, was buried and rose again so that they could have life and really the true and greatest fear of you. Awe and respect as well as fear for you are the one that has power not only over the body, but also over the soul. Lord Jesus, may we all follow you as the bishop of our soul, submit to you and trust you that you might glorify yourself in us through us as we humbly walk with you. We give ourselves to you now as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.